All right. Well, if you'd open your Bibles to uh, Judges chapter 3. And my name is Sam. Real quick uh, statement or plug for the day of prayer. We never really opened our church like that on the National Day of Prayer. And I just wanted to say it's, um, it's, uh, it's just so awesome. I, went, I had the privilege of going to uh, Europe with my good friend Aaron. And um, we had a chance to kind of just go into different churches and, and kind of, I guess, monasteries, whatever they are, they, that are over there. And they're always open. And you go in there and you automatically feel like, a better Christian because you're there because it's like this sacred space and it's just quiet and all the, the wood smells and it's uh, it's just an awesome experience and so uh, and we just sat there and we'd pray silently and so I encourage you we're trying to kind of I guess remake that if you will here in the strip mall in Marysville Washington and I'm pretty convinced that God uh, dwells uh, where he dwells whether it be in a strip mall or some really pretty building and so uh, I'm excited about that it'll just be a great time um, to be here, to have some, some solitude, and, and to, to pray. and So I encourage you uh, to participate in that. I think it would be uh, different, but a, an amazing experience. We are in uh, Judges, again, chapter 3, and we are going, as Chris said, through one entire verse, because we hit every single verse, and so today is just one verse, and you're like, how could you ever get a sermon out of one verse? And like, well, just like this. Here we go. Judges 3.31. And uh, this is what it says. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. And all God's people said, this is God's word. So the after him he's talking about is Ehud. Last week we... uh, uh, spoke about Ehud, and uh, it was a very uh, saucy sermon, if you will, but not as saucy as it could have been. I uh, tried to keep it a little bit of a PG-13 or lower level, which left some people leaving there going, did he just say what I think he said? Did he actually, is that what happened? Ooh, uh, wait, yes. And so I put a couple blogs up on Road Life to read about what actually um, the unrated version was of that. Um, but what it did was give us a picture of some pretty crazy, um, dark, delightfully dark, disturbing story with a hero that was um, shady at best. Uh, and I think along with Ehud and many of the other judges you're going to see, uh, we see that most of God's kind of heroes in Scripture uh, don't really fit the cultural stereotypes of what we would deem heroic, like the superheroes we, we see, like the League of Justice type of superheroes, right? None of them wear capes. Um, none of them have uh, mutant powers. None of them have the superhero stance where they stand there and monologue about how they're going to save the world and those kinds of things. Um, most of the heroes that we see God using are not strong. They're not fast. They're not even moral half the time, and they're definitely not superhuman. What we see, if you go from Genesis to Revelation and just kind of look at the people that God employs for his purposes, they're mostly weak, mostly um, pretty fleshly, uh, and mostly screwed up uh, normal everyday humans. And that should be encouraging to us. It's encouraging to me. Uh, God, for whatever reason, has decided that the plan for redemption the plan for redeeming uh, his people and his world, because I believe all of creation is being and has been redeemed, uh, would be accomplished through sinful men and women. That's the means, as crazy as that is, that he has decided to use. Now, 
So we see time and time again God using the foolish to confound the wise, God using the weak to defeat the strong, God using the ordinary to do things that are extraordinary. And that truth or that repetition of God doing that over and over again should remind us or get us to a place where we see that there actually is only one hero in the entire story, and that is God. Every story, God is the hero, although we want to make much of Joshua's and the Moses's. They are never the heroes. God is the hero, and he uses these broken people to almost prove that time and time again. So we have this motley crew of people, of nobodies, that by his power he kind of makes into somebodies. Now, it's almost as if, and I don't remember, everyone knows the stories or the experience perhaps of, of in elementary school where you're picking teams. Who's going to be the captain? I always like, oh, I'll be the captain, because I always didn't want to not be picked, right? So we have this kind of layout of all the kids there, and it seems like as God is the captain or one of the captains, he tends to pick all the people that no one else ever wants, right? He picks the people that everyone avoids or picks last, the slow kid, the unathletic kid, uh, the one-legged kid, the blind kid, you know, all the people that you go, this kid can't even catch a football because he has no arms, right? This is not the person that I would pick for my team, but God always is, like, he almost only picks them. Now, some of God's greatest draft picks I know how disappointing and confusing the draft for the Seahawks might have been this past couple days. I'm with you. However, God is the one, like, he picks these draft picks that are not even on the charts. Like, they're not even, like, mentioned. And think about this. Some of his greatest draft picks, a fugitive, boat builders, a shepherd, a religious zealot who was also a murderer, uh, a teenage mom, politicians, prostitutes, adulterers, invalids, criminals, fishermen, and even ancient IRS agents, right? That's who God uses. He employs these people. These are the, like his number one picks. Like, oh, I can't believe you overlooked that guy. And he takes him like, yeah, you can have him, right? God has a very different perspective, and he accomplishes his mission through the weak, through the weird, and through the wayward at times. Now, I think this is no more true than in the book of Judges, which is probably why so many pastors avoid preaching it. Uh, so far, we've seen a coppersmith who was a family man. We've seen a seductive assassin with a homemade sword. And now we have a farmer with a cattle prod, basically. And you have one guy that's pretty ordinary. You have one guy in Ehud that's pretty outrageous. And then you have this guy named Shamgar, who's pretty obscure. I think he's one of the most obscure, unknown guys in Scripture. And it's not as if you've probably heard too many Sunday school stories about Shamgar. Right? You mentioned Shamgar, like, who? Who is this? Which I think is an awesome name. If we ever have another son, I think I'm going to go with Shamgar because it just sounds cool. But this guy has two whole verses. I've read one. Two whole verses and 45 words in Scripture. And that's it. And yet he's, he's one of the 12. He's one of the 12 judges that are in the book of Judges. And these verses, these two verses provide absolutely no information 
that is helpful other than what he did. It has no information about his birth, no information about his childhood or whose parents were, no information about his family lineage, no information about his education, about his career, about any decisions, good or bad, he's made up to this point. We have no idea who he is, and we really never learn who he is. Even if you look back in the rabbinical like history, they haven't a clue either. It is not clear what tribe he comes from, though because they've tried to match each judge with a tribe, they've assumed he comes from Simeon, who was in the midst of Judah. And no one knows exactly where he lives. No one knows um, even how he saves Israel exactly. They see him do this kind of amazing thing that we'll talk about, but I mean, the guy is memorialized for what measures pretty, pretty high on the awesome scale, right? I mean, like, dude, that's pretty rad, like what you did there. But it's not as if people go, oh, yeah, Shamgar. I remember him. No one even knows who he is. And it doesn't help that the, the one verse about him is squeezed in between the two of most, like, amazing or, or colorful stories in the book of Judges. Ehud, which we heard last week, and then Deborah, which we'll hear the second week, and that one's like saucier. Like PG-13, close to our saucy, great one to be preaching when the ladies are not here at the women's retreat. Okay, Now, Shamgar, by, if you look at his name, Shamgar, they said, is the son of Anath, and his name, his surname at least, is, is foreign. So it's possible that Shamgar, and most likely that he wasn't even an Israelite, that he was actually a Hittite, because his surname uh, is connected with Anat, who's the Canaanite fertility goddess. Okay, Now, the name Shamgar, the Hebrew name, though, Shamgar, means name of a stranger. So in other words, he's a member of the other team. Well, if we have God's team and the other team, it seems like he's a member of the other team, never even expected to be faithful. He's a nobody. He's a stranger. He's an unknown. He may not even be an Israelite. And Scripture not only hides exactly who Shamgar's is, but he, we know nothing about Israel's disobedience, right? The cycle's always been Israel did you know, wrong and what was not right in God's eyes, and then God raises up an oppressor. We don't know who the oppressor is. At least it doesn't tell us directly. And we don't know um, what, uh, even if God raised up Shamgar directly, because it doesn't say that. So we know nothing about this guy. It's uh, most likely, if you look into chapter 4, in verse 1 of chapter 4, it records Ehud's death. That was the guy we preached on last week. And you have Shamgar right in the middle. So it's likely that he was fighting, because a lot of these are actually contemporaries. They happen at the same time in different locations. It's most likely that the Shamgar was probably uh, maybe facing the similar or same oppression that Ehud was, just in a different place. And while Ehud, you know, the lefty, was taking care of Hefty, you've got Shamgar lobbing heads off with his cattle prod at the same time. Now, if you turn to Judges 5, there's one more verse about Shamgar. And this is the only other verse in the Bible that mentions his name. And it's within the song of Deborah. And Deborah, uh, there's a song that kind of recounts uh, the faithfulness of God and everything that's happened up to this point. 
And in verse 6, it gives us some insight into maybe the time period or the, the location, wherever it was, that Shamgar is living in and what the environment was like. And it says, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and the travelers kept to the byways. So, if we just take what that says, apparently the days of Shamgar were really dangerous. Um, the highways where everyone would mainly travel were so full of, of plunderers and robbers that they were abandoned and travelers stuck to the back roads just to be safe. And if you think about that kind of environment, most likely trade had come to a halt, um, at least trade that wasn't protected by lots of soldiers, which would be the oppressors were only able to do that. The black market was probably flourishing, and you are stuck in a, a community or a nation uh, where they are worshiping money and sex, and that's driving most of their decision-making. So pretty bad time. Most men are doing, as the Bible says time and time again, what's right in their own eyes, and there is therefore little law enforcement um, and little judicial appeal or protection for anyone. And historically, it would be common then for uh, little tribes or, or, I guess, groups of 10 to 20 soldiers uh, Canaanite would go and make raids across the countryside because nothing would stop them and they were the ones in charge. So they would go to farms or wherever, or little towns that couldn't be protected. They had no appeal and they would just go and, and, and pillage whatever they wanted. Now, after years of oppression, if you think about this, if it's the same time as, as the Moabite oppression that Ehud um, encounters, if that's the same time, Israel then for a very long time has been under oppression. And they have, probably in that time, uh, very little experience with battle. They have forgotten how to fight. They don't know how to fight. That's one of the reasons that God in the beginning says, hey, I'm going to raise these oppressors up so they learn to fight again. So these guys really don't know how to fight. Uh, They've forgotten. They have no battle experience. And adding to their lack of training, they were especially vulnerable to assaults uh, from the enemy because they didn't have any weapons. In fact, there's a little verse in uh, 1 Samuel where, um, and 1 Samuel is kind of the time when the Philistines specifically uh, are actually oppressing them greatly. And the Philistines, uh, it says this basically, uh, that the Philistines were preventing Israel from learning how to make weapons. And the verse says, Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. So you got a people that have no judicial appeal, no protection from the authority. They don't even have the ability to make weapons um, because there's no blacksmiths. Even if they wanted to fight, they couldn't have swords or weapons or anything like that. So this helps you understand maybe why Ehud makes his own sword because he didn't have any other options. It also makes or helps us understand why Shamgard has to use an ox goad as a weapon. It's all he's got. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with an ox goad. I wasn't. Okay, someone wants an ox goad? I have no idea. Is that an animal? Okay, an ox goad is a tool, and it was a tool that farmers would use to train young oxen as they plowed the field. Okay? And I was going to get a picture of them, but they kind of have some strange pictures of them, and they're hard to see, so you have to use your, your imagination. Uh, an ox goad is basically a, a really long wooden pole, it's usually like six, it can be anywhere from six to ten feet, so think of an eight-foot pole. 
And in one end, it has a sharpened um, point, and uh, on the other end, it has a flat, chisel-like blade, um, and it's a little thicker on that end, a little thinner on the, on the pointy end. So it's this big pole with a you know, nice sharpened point and like a, a hoe, if you will, on one side. And the point was used as they were plowing. He would goad the oxen along to get it going, whether to turn or to whatever, or just to get moving, and he would give them a little poke. And the blade on the other side was used to um, basically clean the plow. And the ox goad would have been um, about, like I said, six inches. Or, it could be pretty big on the, on the um, tool side and a little thin on the other side. So it's just big pole. Now, how or why this farmer had a battle is kind of unknown. Like, why did this guy suddenly you know, have 600 Philistines to deal with? So you think about it. Well, it's possible there was a raid and that these guys, a bunch of men, showed up at uh, Farmer Shamgard's house and he defended his home. Okay, that's possible. It's also possible he was kind of like a guerrilla soldier. Like he's going around with his like ox goat, like jumping up on trees, like, boom, you know, and popping them. I don't know. We don't know. It's to imagine what he did. Uh, it's possible that he took his ox goat. He's like, that's it. I've had enough. And he raised up a militia. And along with their pitchforks, like, grab your tools, boys. And they're like, ah, you know, and they go in. And he has his ox goat. We don't know what happened. But somehow he took on a good number of Philistines. And though this ox goad is uh, kind of a farm tool, it's a pretty awkward one at that, it seems like Shamgard's pretty good at wielding it, right? He effectively kills 600 Philistines with his ox goad, it says. We don't know if this happened at one time, which would be pretty awesome to see him spinning them. You know, it's just like, you can imagine, this would be cool. And my sons were like, that'd be awesome. I know, it'd be awesome. We don't know if it was um, over a length of time, alone, or with people. We, we just, we don't know. And I think it's important that we don't know. Like, that's not an accident we don't know. What you see in, in Scripture is that the details of how it happened are overshadowed by what happened. And what happened is that an obscure, unknown, ill-equipped farmer killed God's enemies with a cattle prod and saved the nation. That's what happened. Why the ha- Doesn't matter how. What matters is what. Now, if you and I were picking teams, hypothetically, From all fleshly measurements, if we're going to go up against 600 soldiers, Shamgar is not going to be the number one guy we pick. It's a great little tool you got there, but I don't know. Shamgar is just an ordinary guy with what amounts to an ordinary tool. From what we know, he wasn't superhuman. He wasn't like, you know, Steven Seagal, like some retired you know, military guy that has all these skills and he's cooking, but then he takes a spoon like, you know, knocks someone out, right? Some like, you know, secret ninja. No, that wasn't him. He wasn't, um, you know, he didn't graduate from the top of judge deliverance school and then decided not to pursue that career, right? We don't know who he was, but you have to assume he was ordinary. And if you compare him with the other judges, he didn't possess the pedigree of Othniel, 
Well, Othniel's a warrior because Caleb was a warrior, and they had a family of warriors. That wasn't Shamgar. He wasn't or didn't have the uh, military experience or prowess that left-handed, you know, Mr. I can kill anybody with a sling and, and bow, left-handed Ehud, special forces dude. We never know what Shamgar did before the battle, and we never know what he did after the battle. Like, did he reign anymore? It's just like nothing. What we know, and all we know, is that he was in a moment given an opportunity to fight for God, and Shamgar, an unknown farmer, used whatever he had, and he did whatever he could to bring salvation to others. And he did so without guarantee that that would happen, which I think is a really important fact to think about. See, our, our world, and I'll even say that the, the Christian world, so everywhere, is really um, reluctant to celebrate the, the ordinarily faithful. And instead, everybody, believers or not, elevate what we would see as extraordinarily fruitful. That's what we talk about. And although we look at Shamgar, well, he was fruitful. Well, compared to the passage right before where they wipe out 10,000 people, 600 is not really that big a deal, although it's a pretty amazing way to do it. But we like to talk about the guys with the degrees, the guys with the accomplishments, the guys with the numbers of whatever numbers you want to see. And today, especially with our, our cyber culture, we are constantly hearing about the various conferences and their educated speakers and all the abbreviations after their name, the big movements with their accomplished leaders, the best-selling books and their authors, the sizes of crowds that various speakers or preachers can gather. But here's what you don't hear about. What we don't hear about are the ordinary electricians that go to build beds for orphans in Haiti. And we don't hear about the treetoppers who serve breakfast at shelters in the morning. And we don't write books about the PUD linemen who spend their evenings counseling people. And we don't hear about high school teachers who go start churches. And we don't hear about the Boeing painters who teach classes about planting churches. You'll or it's not likely that you'll learn the names of the mom of three leading ministries or even the shopkeepers who are possibly putting themselves in danger of being killed for hosting secret churches in their store basements. You'll hear about those people. You may never hear about those ordinary people. Those are the stories of ordinary, everyday people using what, I'm sorry, who they are and what they have to do whatever they can for God. And much like Shamgar and Moses, who was um, a fugitive turned shepherd and 80 years old, Peter, who was a rock-hard fisherman, Paul, who was a religious zealot and murderer, these are the people at some point in their life, and I believe it's when Jesus called them, stopped asking the question, perhaps questions, of who 
have I been or even who am I and started listening to God saying, this is not about who you are. This is about who I am. And by God's grace, they became, and I believe it's by God's grace, more concerned with their faithfulness than they would ever be about their measurable fruitfulness. Now, Shamgar didn't wait for someone else to affirm him. He didn't wait for uh, someone else to even join him. He didn't wait for someone to pave the way before him. He did not wait for God to give him a guarantee of, this will happen if you do this. He fought with what he had. And what he had was not a weapon at all. It was an ordinary instrument for work. See, even if we get to the point, if you and I get to the point of like, you know what, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out in faith. I'm going to get out of the boat and I'm going to go for it, okay? We hesitate a little bit, I think, because in the church culture, I grew up in the church, spent a lot of time, uh, went to a Christian college, and all throughout that time, there's a lot of focus on spiritual gifting. Now, I have no problem with spiritual gifting. It's biblical. It's glorious. It is a grace of God that he gifts us with each person who is a believer is, is given some level of gifting of something. And so people write these books, and they have spiritual gifts tests that people take. And they're supposed to give people a focus about where or how they're designed to serve. But what I often see is that these supposed to be helpful tools are often found to give people justifiable excuses as to why they can't serve or they can't do something. Well, I don't have that gift. That gift doesn't match me. There's no need for what my gifting is. Shamgar didn't have the spiritual gift of, like, bow staff skills, okay? That's not on the list if you look in the Bible. This isn't about, put spiritual gifting on the shelf just for a second. He used what he already had, what he already knew, and he trusted. He trusted and believed without guarantee of any level of fruitfulness or success that God could and would redeem it for his glory. Whatever he had. He didn't go, but I'm just a farmer. All right? I don't got a sword. Okay? He simply said, I'm a farmer. I got an ox goat. Let's go. See, we need to see everything we consider ordinary differently. At some point, At some point, Shamgar didn't go, I could just get a sword. At some point, he looked at what he had, what he knew, who he was, and he saw it differently. He saw it from God's perspective. He saw those things that people would say is ordinary and go, okay, wait a second. God could use this. How? I don't know, but this is what I have. This is who I am. And there's an amazing passage that I can't get by. I've been reading it constantly lately. It's in Mark chapter 1, the first book of the New Testament, I believe, that was probably recorded, at least the first gospel. And 
what it shows that when Jesus calls an individual, everything changes. It doesn't mean a bunch of new stuff necessarily is added to you. It's just the stuff you have, you look at it differently. You see it differently. And in Mark chapter 1 is an incredible picture of what it means to follow Christ. And I'm not talking about the moralisms or the rules or whatever those types of things. I'm just talking about it looks like when someone is doing this, Jesus says, boom, you're mine, and they start doing this. You've got this picture of, you want to talk about following Christ? There's a major turn, and it looks like that. But that's not what sticks out to me most. This is the passage where I got the name of my oldest son, Fisher, which is, I know, kind of a strange name, and it really has very little to do with the passage, but I like the word, and that's why I like the passage. But this passage, that fisherman idea, wants you to go with me. Chapter 1, verse 16 says this, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So they're doing their job. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Hold on to that. And immediately, and think about it, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called to them. Now, I'm assuming, and maybe I'm reading into it, that he called to them in a very similar way. He's talking to two brothers. They're fishermen. Two brothers who are fishermen. He called them. They followed. He called them. He followed. So I, James and John, I don't know why he wouldn't say, hey, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men again. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat, and he hired the servants and followed him. He goes, so what? Okay, catch this. Jesus doesn't tell at least not directly, Peter and Andrew and James and John, you're done with fishing. Drop the nets, you're done, never to fish again. What he tells them is that he's going to transform them into different kinds of fishermen. What they already knew. What they already know. I'm sure I'm an English teacher. You could follow out that metaphor and make all kinds of all kinds of you know connections and explanations but the reality is he said you're still going to be fishermen you're fishing for different kinds of fish maybe different kinds of ways and it makes sense that God chooses the ordinary and uses who they are and what they are for his glory you look at Moses who was a prince of Egypt spent 40 years in Egypt till he killed somebody because he realized that God's people were being uh basically enslaved and slaughtered, flees Egypt, spends 40 years doing what? Shepherding in the hills. And when he's 80 years old, God goes back and says, now you're going to shepherd my people. Guess he had to learn how to deal with lots of sheep and taking them through the wilderness, right? We have no idea how God prepares us for things. My plan, as I wrote it, which... I caution against that. But as I wrote it, was I'm going to be a high school teacher, teach English, get my raise every year, have my summers off, all glory to God. In 2006, he said, nope, right turn. Not realizing that, well, I did realize it, really. I had been preaching in that classroom for 10 years. 
It was awesome. Okay? I wasn't the greatest teacher, but I was a heck of a preacher for five periods a day for an audience that had to be there for an hour. It's awesome. Okay? We're not going to talk about this today. Right? Just go. And what we see is that God prepared me in the way that He decided to prepare me because I love to preach. I love to teach. And I see how things lined up for me. He doesn't tell Peter and Andrew, you're done fishing. He says, now you're going to fish a different way. See, I believe that Jesus intends to redeem what we might consider ordinary for His purposes. But you have to actually begin to think and look that way. I mean, have you ever considered how God can redeem whatever you consider ordinary in order to bring salvation to others? It's not just so you can do something really cool, like kill 600 Philistines. It's so that you can bring salvation to others. We have a mission while we're here. If you think you don't, you're wrong. Jesus was very specific. Go and make disciples. That wasn't just to the preachers and the pastors and the evangelists. That was to everybody. But it doesn't mean you need to go become a preacher, a pastor, an evangelist to accomplish that particular mission. God intends to redeem what is ordinary that you have to bring salvation to others. And this includes whatever talents you have. I don't know what they are. You may not be good with an ox goad, but maybe you're good with a pen. Maybe God's gifted you with some kind of management skills that no one else has. I have no clue. Your time. Think about God just redeeming your time. Your different skills, your careers, your money, your experiences that only you've had. Using those to bless others. The question is not, what can you do with blank? The question is always, what can God do with it? And have you ever asked that question? Have you ever laid it, I mean, I mean everything on the altar and go, okay, Lord, it's really yours. It already is his. But started looking at all the pieces of your life and going, man, instead of like aiming for retirement as the grand scheme and goal of all things, maybe there's something bigger you're supposed to be pursuing. That being the glory of God and the little things that you do. We are called to be faithful. We are called to be faithful who we are, what we have. And the funny thing is, we're actually not called to be fruitful. That's kind of strange if you think about it. But I've been sitting on this. Um, God deems what's going to be fruitful or not. And sometimes... This would be really difficult. Our faithfulness has absolutely no measurable of fruitfulness we get to see. None. So we like to make the decisions whether we're actually going to pursue God or, or serve God or be faithful to God. If we would, you know, well, I want to know the result. I mean, I'll suffer faithfully if I know 15 people are going to come to Jesus because of it. Right? Shamgar, I'll pick up my ox goad. How many are going to be killed because of this? None. Oh, I don't like that. Sounds like Isaiah, who was told, by the way, you're going to preach, no one's going to listen. Have fun. Right? Okay. We're called to be faithful regardless of fruitfulness. And the reality is sometimes we don't get to see any fruit. 
But I do believe at times, like you see with Shamgar, a little bit of faithfulness ends up impacting a nation. Ends up impacting something and someone that you never would have seen before. Never you would have known that was possible. We have a farmer who uses a cattle prod to help save a nation. And quite frankly, that was one moment. I don't know what Shamgar did before that. I don't know what he did after that. But as one moment, God had an amazing impact on this one guy doing one thing. And you may have one moment. That may be all that God decides for you and for me. We never know all that God does with our faithfulness. We never know. And quite frankly, it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what he does with, this, with our faithfulness. He may have fruit that we never see, but the point is we are to pursue him faithfully. And what matters is remembering this, that the grace of the gospel not only frees you, belief in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for you, not only frees you from slavery to sin, but it frees you to service to Jesus. It's not just, hey, I'm freed from sin and forgiven, amen. And that's true. Now you're freed to serve him, serve him joyfully, to live the life that he intended for you to do, to do the works that he has actually said that you will do by his strength. Yes, sinners are forgiven by Jesus' death, but they're also empowered by Jesus' resurrection. And regardless of how our fruit or your fruit compares with anyone else, doesn't matter. It's a joy to know that God has a unique role for you. That God has uniquely equipped you and given you everything you need to accomplish whatever that calling is. It may be big, it may be small, I don't know. But you're called to be faithful with all that you have been given. So I'll say this with as much grace and gentleness and love, and as I say it to myself as well, a lot of you, specifically, if you're a non-believer, you can just listen. If you don't believe in Jesus, let me tell you something. You are on a constant search for the itch you can't scratch. Right? You are looking for purpose and meaning and joy, and I'm telling you, you're going to fill your bucket with as many things you can and find that they mean nothing. It's meaningless. Go ahead and read Ecclesiastes. The King Solomon, who had everything. What do you mean everything? Add it to the list. Money, women, power, prestige. He got the end of life and went, this is all meaning, it's all gone when I die. Purpose and meaning and joy comes in the fact that there, this is not all there is. And that Jesus Christ gives us new life, new hope, new meaning, new purpose, now and eternity with him. But for those of you who have been Christians a long time, I say this with as much gentleness as I can. Stop wasting your life. Stop wasting your life. Stop making excuses as to why you can't go, why you aren't qualified, why it's just too hard, or why it just won't work right now. I just can't be faithful right now because I just got so many other things to do. You're not guaranteed another breath. And Jesus is simply calling you to be faithful like Shamgar 
not to do a bunch of extra stuff, but just to use who you are already, to what you have already, and do what you can to bring the gospel to others, to bring salvation, the, the good news that we've been freed from slavery into life. So here's some questions to consider. Five questions. I only talk about them, just list them. And if the Holy Spirit slaps you upside the head, no, it's not me slapping you upside the head because I'm not using names. I'm like, well, you know, John. Okay, I'm not saying that. So if you're a tickle, maybe you should listen to that tickle, right? Here's a good question. Are you faithfully stewarding what God has given you? Your money, your time, your skills, your experiences, are you faithfully stewarding it? Now, to be a steward, you have to actually already believe that it's all God's. That you're just managing his stuff, which includes that. How are you stewarding it? Two, are you faithfully protecting those in your care? I use that one because I actually believe Shamgar was approached by others. I think he was raided. And he had to defend his home, first and foremost. Hugely important. So are you faithfully protecting those in your care? Well, who am I care? Your family? Your church, your neighbors, I have responsibility to them. Well, Jesus said love your neighbors, so I'm thinking maybe uh, he meant it. Three, are you faithfully listening to the Spirit of God? Or more clearly, how do you make decisions about what you're going to do next or when you're going to not do something? Are you listening to the Spirit of God? Because it's a pretty dangerous thing to listen to him. He might tell you to do something psycho. Right? Something crazy. That's why we ignore him a lot, because he may actually tell us something we don't want to hear. I believe Shamgar listened to the Spirit when he said, Grab your ox code. Huh? Okay. Last two. Are you faithfully fighting God's enemies? Oh, come on, Sam. It's not like we have a bunch of Philistines running around. Well, I don't know about that. But there's a lot of enemies. Pride's an enemy of God. I actually believe comfort and convenience is an enemy of God. Are you fighting those temptations? And lastly, are you faithfully risking for the gospel? When's the last time you actually took a step of faith that required some risk, that actually potentially you might lose something. Shamgar was successful. You know, hey, fantastic. He knew full well that he could die. When's the last time you risked anything? I'm not saying those moments come on a daily thing. I'm going to risk everything for the gospel every day. But there are those moments, those opportunities that you can avoid or you can step into. It takes courage and all that comes by the grace of God, but risk. It was the last time you risked for the gospel. So I'll close with this. I actually believe that we need a church full of shamgars. In fact, I was going to make a t-shirt. I never got into it that says, I am shamgar, right? I think it would be a great, it's mine. Okay, I'm going to mail it to myself today so no one can take that. That's a million-dollar maker right there. 
Let's not upload the sermon until I get that sent off. All right. A church full of sham goats. What's that? A church full of people trusting that who they are right now and all they have right now can be used for God right now. I don't fully know what that means, but I know that it's not ten years from now. I know it's now. Sham guards don't wait. They're not hasty, but they don't wait. They don't wait for someone else to step up. They don't wait and make excuses about what they don't have. They don't dwell on where they've been or what they might not be able to accomplish. They ask, why not? They ask, okay, where now? They ask, what's possible? What could we do? And when it seems ridiculous, we're like, why not? I don't know. You're probably on the right track. Because sham guards just take what they have, whatever it is, whatever tools God has given them, and they trust that God is going to supply whatever's not there. God will do it. A church of sham guards is honestly a church not full of people who are able, but a church of people who are just willing. That are just willing. Now, one little caveat that's been really difficult for my personal pride. So here you go. Here's the heart of the pastor. Um, a church of sham guards may be a church of incredibly and deeply faithful people, but it might be a rather obscure, unknown people. What I mean is that maybe you don't, so I'll just share my own. Um, We all seem to struggle with significance. Like we all want to believe that our life's going to make a difference, that that we're going to leave a legacy, right? There's going to be something significant as a monument to my existence, And the question that we all have to ask ourselves, and the question that I have, I have gone through in my mind this week more than once, is whether or not I'm okay with one verse. Am I okay with one verse or no verses? Am I okay with insignificance on a comparative level? It doesn't mean that Shamgars are never remembered. I mean, we're preaching about them today, ironically. But it means that the sham guards just don't care if they're remembered. They may not be known or remembered by the world or recognized by whoever they feel needs to recognize them because they have the deep conviction that it's enough that they're known by God. That's enough. My faith is known by God. God knows me. We live for the audience of one. And I think it important, at least for me, as a, as a pastor, to remember that Jesus only had three years of ministry. And on a scale of comparison, we go, geez, that's all? And what he had to give, the, the ox goat he had, was his life. His death was his tool, which may be what we're asked, some of us, to give. I know I have that. But let us never forget that even before his son Jesus did a second of ministry, a second of anything that we might consider measurable, before he did any of that, 
God said to him, this is my son in whom I am well pleased before he did anything. That's how he sees us, approved and pleased, whether we are measurably faithful or not. Whether we swing the ox goat or not, he still says, I don't care if you swing him once, I'm still well pleased. But hopefully it's a joy to pursue that. So we're going to close our service with communion, and I want to challenge you with something. Um, Communion is remembering and actively participating in what Jesus had done for us to produce faith in us and to redeem us. And I think an interesting thing about communion, it's kind of like singing very familiar songs. Your brain kind of shuts off, and you kind of forget what you're actually saying. You're just kind of in the melody and the rhythm of it. I believe it's very important to take communion every Sunday, and that was something we've committed to as a church because Jesus pretty much commanded us to. So we thought we'd just go with what Jesus said. And it's important to remember what we're all about. And so communion isn't like the backpack you put on and, and, you know, like, hey, I'm a Christian, and this is the thing we do, and we walk around and um, just kind of go through the motions of Christianity. Communion is, quite frankly, um, the thing that everything on Sunday morning points to, as weird as that is. It's not the music, it's not the sermon, it's not the announcements, it's communion is why we're here. And if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, I ask you to do so today. I ask you to to honestly just admit that you are a broken, ordinary, sinful person who, no matter how hard you try, you ain't going to make it. But Jesus was the ordinary man who did something incredibly extraordinary. He died for you, that you might live. And for those of you who put your faith in Christ, those of you who regularly participate in this meal, let me just tell you, you are no longer ordinary. You're not ordinary. You are a chosen son or daughter of God. You are a chosen citizen of a heavenly kingdom. You are a chosen ambassador with a ministry on mission now. So you come to this table, you are offering all that you have in response to our Lord having offered everything He had for us. So when you come to this table, you are making a clear confession to God with us corporately. You are offering up your skills, you are offering up your talents, you are offering up your money, you are offering up your experiences, you are offering up your life in response to Christ offering up to you. And remember this, you don't have to take communion. In fact, the majority of the world is not taking communion today or every Sunday. You are choosing to do this. You are choosing to come up and you are choosing to make a confession. Don't just do it out of routine. Know that as you do that, you are offering your whole life to Him and you are saying, yes, Lord, it's yours. Consider why you are taking communion today. And consider what it says Because what it's saying is that all the ordinary stuff you think is just bleh, you're offering up to God to do something extraordinary. I don't know what that is, 
but I know what submission looks like and humility looks like. It looks like Christ. So I pray you'll think about it before you go through the motions again. And you'll think about the songs that we sing. And you think about what you're actually offering to the Lord. Okay?